please look with me at today's scripture reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure from every to- from all my toil, and this was my reward from all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had spent in doing it, and again, all my vanity, all was vanity and a chasing after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. There is nothing better for mortals than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and heaping, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a chasing after wind. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Scripture. Our hearts and minds are open. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) You know, uh, we we human beings, we people, uh, we tend to believe things that that aren't quite accurate, don't we? And one of the things that, that we believe to be true, that's really a lie, is that if we just had enough, everything would be just fine. Uh, I can remember there's an old commercial out there from, from some kind of investment company, and, and they say something like, in, in you know, your retirement plan being in the lottery is it such a wise thing. Uh, many years ago, uh, we had a bishop from North Alabama, uh, Bishop uh, Robert Fannin, and uh, this was one of those times when Alabama was discussing whether or not to have a lottery. And, and he told the clergy, he said, if any of you win the lottery, I'm going to take your orders from you. And uh, my friend said to him, Bishop, if, if I win the lottery, does it really matter? <laughs> you know, and, and the bishop, he wasn't against the lottery because um, for anything other than he believed and knew that gaining material wealth wasn't the point. It, it wasn't the point. It was a chasing after the wind. You know, I read an article this week that had a bunch of different places, or it had seven different people who had won the lottery and it ruined their life. Uh, One of them was a school teacher who won $21 million. And he had to quit teaching a job that he loved very much because the faculty and students would harass him for money. The faculty even scoffed at him when he gave them gift certificates to Starbucks. You know, there was another couple who won, in a four-year time, won a million dollars, and then $50,000, and then another $1.2 million. And in this span, they bought cars, they bought a boat, but they didn't pay off debt. Now they're in more debt than they were than before they won the lottery. My point is, is we believe that lie that if we just had enough, everything 
would be better, if we just had enough money, if we just had enough friends, if we just had enough clothes, if we just had, you know, you fill in the blank, everything would be okay. Now, many of you know that I'm a New Orleans Saints fan, right? I talk about that freely. But, but what you might not know, unless you've gotten to know me a little better, is that I'm also an Alabama fan. I don't like to talk about that much from the stage because it can get all weird and, and, and I just don't like to do that. But last week when Alabama lost to Tennessee, you would have thought that the world had come to an end you know, people were calling for firing coaches and benching players. Alabama had beat Tennessee 15 years in a row. And yet it's not enough. You know, Alabama also claims 18 national championships. And the thing about it is that's not enough either. If we get 19, there'll be 20. It's chasing after the wind. What makes us chase after things that are really not attainable? What, what makes us do that? And I think our human nature is that in our brokenness, we have this excessive pride in ourselves and our achievements. The, the text that, that we read calls it vanity the obsession with selfish things. Now, Ecclesiastes, I've had a lot of fun working with Ecclesiastes this week. It comes from the same genre as Proverbs and Job. It's called wisdom literature. And in ancient Hebrew thought, wisdom was a way of life, a pattern of one's behavior that was grounded in their love for God and God's character. Now, the teacher here in Ecclesiastes is wrestling with this problem of life and stuff and what it means to give your best to God. The main question Ecclesiastes is addressing is found in Ecclesiastes 1 verses 3 through 4 and it says this, what do people gain from all the hard work that they work so hard at under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains as it always was. This is the question that we have been asking ourselves as people from the beginning of time. What is the purpose in life? Why are we here? is what we're doing, does it really matter? Now here in the portion that Kyle read for us, the teacher begins to talk about how he found fulfillment in his work. He talks about all the great projects that he has done and that he has become greater than any king that has lived before him. And yet, as he reflects on his accomplishment, he realized that this accumulation led to nothing, no gain for his life. Now, he's not suggesting that you shouldn't work hard or it's unimportant to do your best and achieve things. 
But he's saying it's like chasing the wind. Material gain can never be fully grasped. There'll never be enough. And in our United Methodist way of thinking about how God works in the world, we understand, at least we, we are taught, that nothing but God is enough. We only find contentment in our relationship when we make Jesus the main thing. And from this teacher's point of view in Ecclesiastes, Unhealthy obsessions with stuff and following God in the good life are both attainable. And he's urging people to follow the good life. Let's look at verses 24 through 26, the second half of what Kyle read. There is nothing better for mortals than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. There, this also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. Uh, in these verses, the, the teacher is referring to the good life. Uh, here in this text, you, you see two words. You see the word better, and you see the word pleases. These are pointing to choosing a better way of life, choosing God, choosing contentment. And God wants to reward people for their faithfulness. This concept of reward is found throughout Ecclesiastes. It's also found uh, in verse 10, the first part of what Kyle read. For whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure from all my toil, and this was my reward from all my toil. Reward was typically, reward from God was typically seen as a smaller piece of a bigger whole. And then verse 11, he continues, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had spent in doing it. And again, all was vanity and chasing after the wind and there was nothing gained under the sun. We can't know our full reward because we humans are limited in time and space. God's rewards for us are much bigger than anything our human brains can come up with. Our reward from God is not found in these unhealthy possessions, these unhealthy obsession with which we try and accumulate things, but it's found in the good life and being content in the moment. You know, last week we had a passage from the Sermon on the Mount, and if you were here, you remember me talk about how John Wesley uh, referred to, to these 
uh, passages quite a bit in his teaching. And in one of his sermons that he was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he said this. He said, life of holiness rightly lived is a life of contentment, a life that chooses the path of pleasing God and enjoying God's gifts. People who give Jesus their best live a life of contentment and they flourish. Now, we cannot offer our first fruits to God when we choose the unhealthy desires of the world, right? We have the choice to pursue something better than just being spectators in life. There are things that we can do starting today that can help us become the person that God desires for us to be. If we're truly going to give our best, our first fruits to God, we need to change our perspective so that we can live a life of contentment. So many people act as if they are the most important thing in the world. They act as if the world revolves around them. And that's a false perspective. Our time and space here on this earth is so, so small in the expanse of human history. Now, some, some really smart people uh, have dated the earth at 4.6 billion years old. Uh, and to give you an idea of what that's like, uh, I'm 53, and because math will be easier if I was 50, we're gonna pretend that I'm 50. <laughs> and, and using some information uh, that I got from Peter Eanes in a blog post of his, if the Earth is 4.6 billion years old and is scaled to the length of a football field, then, my life, 50 years, is a little less than four one-hundred thousandths of an inch. A sheet of paper is about four one-thousandths of an inch. So my life is a hundred times thinner than this piece of paper on the grand scheme of human history. Why are we acting like we are in charge of the world? Learning to change your perspective is a core skill to being able to have a contented life. I wanna share just a few keys real quick that I think that we could implement in our lives to help us to have a better perspective. Uh, the first thing is we need to reframe our thoughts. So many of us treat our spiritual life as if it's just a chore to be done. You know, uh, during the fall especially, we have really busy seasons, actually nowadays, it's busy year round. But I've heard people say that they haven't been able to um, 
have a weekend off for six, eight weeks at a time. And they finally get a weekend off and they go, well, I guess we have to go to church. What if you change the way you talk to yourself and say, God, we've been so busy. We've been out so many weeks, but this week we get to go to church. Making that small change can help reframe how you think about life. And you can do it in, in other areas of your life as well. You know, your neighbor has something going on. You go, oh, I, got, I have to make them dinner. No, you get to make them dinner. You get to meet on Wednesday night with a small group and dig into scripture. You, you get to go on a mission trip with your church community. You get to come and bring a trunk this afternoon and smile and hand out candy. Also, to change our perspective, we need to begin to look at the big picture. You know, changing your perspective uh, is not very easy, is it? It's so easy to let a negative thing just spiral us into a negative space. But when you focus on the big picture, it's easier to put those smaller things into perspective. Uh, in Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective Families, he, he talks about a time where he came home from work and as he uh, got to the door, his son was standing there and he was just beaming with pride. And he said, what have you been up to today? And, and his son exclaimed, Dad, I am a hard-working man. Well, later that night, as he's talking with his wife, he got the story of what happened that day. Well, his wife had walked into the kitchen and their son had taken a gallon of water out of the refrigerator and had poured it all over the kitchen floor. And she was not happy and she was gonna yell at him and punish him, but she stopped herself, took a breath, and went, what were you doing? And he said, I'm trying to be a hard working man. You see, I've washed all the dishes. And she looked over on the kitchen table and saw all the clean dishes. <laughs> she used it as a time to talk about what's maybe some better ways that we can help clean up around the house. And then it took her about 10 minutes to clean up the mess. If she would have yelled at him and sent him to his room, it would have taken about 10 minutes to clean up the mess. But instead, he greeted his dad at the end of the day, of the day with a big smile saying, I am a hardworking man. Instead of daddy, I've been a bad boy. An effective way to change your perspective is to keep that big picture in mind. And another way is to be generous. There's a reason why we should give our first fruits to God. It's because choosing the path of generosity changes our life. Secular studies have shown that there are eight quantifiable benefits to being a generous person. 
Generous people have a greater satisfaction with life. They have more friends. They have stronger relationships with people. They have, they're happier with their jobs in school. They have a more positive outlook on life. They have better physical and mental health. They have satisfaction with what they have and they have higher self-esteem. The truth is generosity can change your life. It can help you stop chasing the wind. Did you realize that in the Bible, the word believe is used 273 times? The word pray is used 371 times. Love, 714 times. And give is used 2,172 times. Generosity changes your life. This scripture in Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes, hits right at the heart of our humanness. Our desire to achieve and put our treasures in this world overcomes our desire to choose the good life and to follow good and to follow God. The the problem that the teacher in the story brings up is that without God, it's like chasing the wind. There'll never be enough. In Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse 21, that's in between the two segments we read, the teacher says this, because sometimes those who have worked hard with wisdom, knowledge, and skill must leave the results of their hard work as a possession to those who haven't worked hard for it. This is pointless. It's a terrible thing. Any one of us can say that, can't we? A person can work hard in their life and it just gets left for someone who didn't do anything at all. Moses is one of the greatest leaders of Israel, led the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. Uh, Jesus demonstrated that Moses foreshadowed his Messiahship. Moses is listed in Hebrews 11 as having a flawless faith. Deuteronomy 34 says, no prophet has risen since in Israel like Moses, whom God knew face to face. Yet Moses, for all of his hard work, did not enter the promised land. Come to think of it, isn't that what Jesus did? He spent his lifetime here on earth with wisdom and knowledge and skill. He went about Palestine doing good, healing the sick, taking care of the poor, keeping every one of God's commandments flawlessly. And what was the outcome? He left it all, all of his hard work and possessions to those who hadn't worked for it at all, to you and to me. Paul says 
in the book of Philippians that he knows the secret to having a contented life. I've learned by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much. With much as with little. I found the recipe for being happy whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. When we take into account our place and purpose in this world, it's nothing without Jesus. Without Jesus being a part of our life, have you made Jesus the main thing in your life? Let's pray together. Oh God, we come to you with all the things we've chased after in this life to say like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, it's all for nothing, it's just chasing of the wind. Help us to follow you to live the good life and be content in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we come to the time where we respond with our offering, I want to ask you, if have you actually given your best to Jesus? Because there's nothing else, nothing in this world that can sustain us and live in peace and contentment with God and each other than Jesus. Nothing. My prayer is that you will give it all, give your best to Jesus. Let's stand, let's sing together.